Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, everyone who is listening in with us today. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. This is episode number 15 on the 24th of October, 2011. As per usual, I am joined by the amazingly articulate Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing very well, Mark. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing... I'm doing pretty well (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm not quite sure about that yeah i'm doing all right i'm awake i'm moving the day started it's a monday you know so it's not too bad yeah we have a public holiday in new zealand today so it's like yeah well you're a contractor how do you take public holidays well because my wife forces me to aha i tend to i tend to just work through them (laughs) (laughs) so do you um stick with the aussie public holidays then no, I don't really follow public holidays at See, all. See, the, the thing is, my my main clients are in Australia, so I sometimes I work on New Zealand public holidays, but then I take the Australian public holidays off. So it's just I'm you know balancing things out Fair a little enough. bit. Yeah, I think that the only Australian holiday I tend to take off will be Australia Day, because I tend to have a barbecue on that day. Uh, okay, but uh, things like Melbourne Cup. Yeah, most of my clients. Oh my god! Yeah, Mel- <laughs> Melbourne Cup is just shocking. Oh, yeah, I'm not even going there. <laughs> Trying to explain to international clients. Yeah, no, the whole city stops because of a horse race. <laughs> it's always good fun. Yeah. Time flies. Actually, I wasn't really aware that it's episode number fifteen today. Yeah, yeah, we've done a few of these. Yeah, interesting. So, so what, what's happening today, actually? What what exciting things have shown up in the dates today? Uh, I've got two. Yeah, and you go first. Um, one is the Concorde made it its last commercial flight in two thousand three today. Oh yes. And the other thing that's a very private one, it's my eighteenth anniversary with my lovely wife today. Oh, how lovely! Oh, she's put up with you for that long. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Sometimes I can't believe it. <laughs> I'll have to ask her about that next time I see her. <laughs> so what did you find? <laughs> <laughs> well, slightly less, you know, soppy. Um, today is the 66th anniversary of the United Nations being fi- founded in 1945. Mm. And the other one I found was that nylon stockings first go on sale in 1939, as of today. Awesome. So couple of interesting things going on on today yep. but uh, we, we've got a bit to talk about uh, as I can see from our, our show notes and uh, if anyone's been following you on Twitter uh, I think they may have noticed a couple of day long rant that uh, <laughs> that never seemed to end would you would you want to give us a bit of background on what happening was happening there sure I would and I'm happy to continue my rant on the show for the next half an hour basically <laughs> So what happened, I mean, to, to give people an idea of what happened in general first, I had an issue with Adobe support, Adobe customer support. And for everyone who is sort of involved with the Adobe community or has actually had to use Adobe support themselves before, you will probably know that, yeah, how to express it politely, you know, things could be improved when it comes to Adobe Adobe's customer so, support. So what was the actual, can you fill us in on what the actual issue was? Like, what, Yeah, what the was issue it? was basically a creative speed issue. So um, we recently got new laptops and switched a few laptops around basically. And I wanted to straighten up the way how we use our creative suite licenses. Yep. And basically we all have master collections. So we've got the whole suite of tools. And the first thing I wanted to do 
um, take an existing laptop, MacBook Air, remove a certain license key, like deactivate it totally from that machine, which you can do yep. fine. Put in another license key. Again, master collection, same, you know, just switching license keys, really. And activate it again. So I, I started to do that, basically. Deactivated the license. And there are, when you deactivate a license key with, with Creative Suite, there are two ways of doing that. You can basically suspend the license. And that means everything stays on the machine. It's just temporarily taken out of the licensing scheme. Mm-hmm. Or you can totally delete it. And like what's called deactivating it. And that's what I, what I was trying to do. So I did that and that worked fine. I put the new license key in and it said, can't activate. And I was going, what the hell? This is yep. just, you know, ridiculous. Because we actually needed the tools to work with as well. Yeah. So that was not really fun. And it happened on a Monday the Monday last week in the afternoon, basically. Um, so I called it over support. Or after trying a few things myself, like using the same key on a different laptop, and which didn't change anything, I called it over support. And the way how it works is you call an 0800 number, and I couldn't even do that because even though the call center sits in India somewhere, they have time-restricted support. So if I call the New Zealand 0800 number, they just give me support from 9 to 5. Which That's is awful. amazing. So I dialed the Singapore number because Singapore still had daytime. <laughs> and I basically called internationally via Skype. Yeah. And talked to, over the course of the night, three different people who gave me three conflicting sets of information and really, really stupid things to do. Like, oh, you know, can you change your host file and remove all entries of your host file well there's just local host in there and i need local host you know to make my system work i don't do that sorry and then stuff like they they were aware that i was calling on skype and then he wanted one of the guys wanted me to um reboot my computer in safe mode and try to activate it which i knew in the first place wouldn't change anything at yeah. all and then i said look how are you how do you think this is going to to work because I'm calling you on Skype from this computer. And he said, oh, yeah, then it is likely that our connection will be terminated. And I just thought, it's likely? Really? Likely? (laughs) I would say it's 100% given that our connection is going to be terminated. You know, and that type of level of skill from people who I wanted to just solve a technical issue for me, it was just really, really annoying. And the second guy at some stage basically got me to reinstall it and said, oh, when you reinstall it and clear a certain file, then it will activate. And obviously I did that and um, it didn't. So then I ended up with a third guy who started to talk me through the same stuff again and again and again. And they don't give you any option to escalate this. You know, there's no like exit word or exit key where you can say, right, I'm sick of it. Give me a proper technician. And if you don't, I'm going to complain. There's no way of getting that done, basically. The only thing I got after spending three hours talking to seriously clueless support people was, oh, we are going to call you back at some point in the next 48 hours or not actually call you back. We're going to be in touch in the next 48 hours. Which, you know, when you're sitting basically on um, 
on in the, by then two machines where you want to use master collection on and you just can't activate it. Mm. And you even can't go back to trial to have it running for 30 days in trial mode to bridge those 48 hours. This is really annoying, basically. And it was clear to me that this is not an issue with the license key and or our machine. This is an issue with Adobe's activation server. It was yeah. so obvious, but you know, obviously no one would admit to that. Um, so what happened then on the next, or I started, you know, writing a few really angry, angry, but from my point of view, fairly, well, fair, fairly expressed complaints on various mailing lists and on Twitter. Yep. Um, so because, because I was, I mean, um, to be honest, I was really angry because I felt like this is a really, really bad treatment for people who need support. And I'm quite involved with the Adobe community, so I, I, you know, I can't even imagine how it must be for someone who's an actual end user, you know, like a hobby photographer who's using Photoshop and who's getting nowhere with Adobe support because they just follow their quite poorly written, to be honest, script. Yeah, it's interesting that you're getting um, multiple solutions neither of which work, but are completely conflicting from support person to support person, which almost makes me wonder whether the, the support person behind it actually has no idea and is simply making stuff up. Could well be. Or and maybe, rather than escalating it. Is, yeah, or is, may, maybe they are not you know, trained well enough um, to actually make the decision to escalate things in certain cases. I don't know. You know or, maybe, or maybe it's just not part of the process. Another interesting thing that happened, by the way, is when you run into those activation issues, there is a way where support people can override the failed activation. So they can give you a certain code on the phone that you can enter, and then your software gets activated offline, so to speak. Yep. So at some point, when I was really fed up with that support experience, I um, asked one of those guys, hey, couldn't we just do that? And he said, no, that's not, not part of the process. And I said, what do you mean, actually, it's not part of the process? Yeah, we have that, that option to do that, but we can't do, or we're not allowed to do that in your scenario because you have a technical issue and we can just override the, you know, the activation mechanism if, for whatever reason, an old license didn't get de- deactivated. So you need to have one, at least one active installation with that license key so that we can override something. Oh, so like if you've you've forgotten to deactivate it and that you're calling them up and you're like, oh, I I forgot to deactivate it, but I formatted my hard drive and now I can't deactivate it anymore. Yeah, something like that, basically. Then they would override it. But because I had a technical issue, they would not do that because it's not part of their process. They could do it technically, but they wouldn't. So they rather have a customer sitting there for, you know, 24, 48 hours or a week or a month, not yeah. being able to use the software rather than doing the common sense thing and override your license, co- license your activation code. What I find interesting is, is this, you can't be the first person this has happened to. Nope, this, I don't this, think so. Yeah, there's got to be some solution. Because so obviously th- you had a solution, so there has to be some solution. So, see, the the problem is, um, 
I don't know exactly what they do when it comes to activation of software and, you know, what the justification is. But what what I basically did in the end, because Adobe didn't give me a solution, I, and I'm happy to say that really publicly here, I basically hacked my installation. Don't necessarily blame me. It's, you know, to be honest, it's not even that hard. So I wonder, some, you know, when I, when I did that, basically, it took me about, after spending three hours with support, on that issue, it took me about another two minutes to get my copy to work illegally, admitted, mm. but it worked again. Right? Yeah. And that experience makes you wonder two things. First, DRM, fair enough. If, if a vendor wants to protect their software, not a problem at all. But it usually basically ends up causing trouble for the honest customers yep. because even me who had nothing evil in mind managed to get an illegal hack into my creative suite in two minutes so you yep. know imagine how long it takes a professional hacker or cracker to get around those issues 20 yep. seconds i don't know whatever yeah no that's fair enough so you know me as an honest customer i was basically blocked because of an activation problem that i had no fault you know to creating it in the first place at all and that's really what 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 starts to annoy me um other companies doing obviously the same thing like microsoft's doing activation but to be fair i never had an issue with activating any microsoft software so far i um, think once i had an issue upgrading some components it was like you need to upgrade this. And it was, you know what? It was a phone call. I think they picked it up in about five minutes. I mean, this was years and years ago. They picked it up in about five minutes. And they're like, yep, that's fine. Here's your activation code. Enter it in. Boom, you're away and you're, you're off. And it was a 24-hour number too. So it was just like, you know, it was a two-second job. So there's definitely ways of doing this stuff right if you want to do it at all. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, um, I mean, other companies don't do activation at all. You know, if you look at some Apple software, you just download it and they basically sort of trust that you're honest with it and, you know, don't spread it around. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I can see both sides, but after this experience, I'm leaning more towards the, well, you know, just give people the software because people who want to crack it will crack it anyway. And it's not a big deal for them. You know, it's even not hard. it's not hard, you know, even, even stuff like DRM protected eBooks, have a look at, uh, at you know at random sites where you where all those ebooks pop up basically, and how long does it take people to crack that? You know, a day yeah. after being published, and you think like, well, is it really worth the effort? You know, for Amazon and for all other vendors yep. to put that that technology in there because it's going to be hacked anyway in the end. Oh, I think uh, well, Amazon's DRM is tied straight to their Kindle, so you kind of got a bit of vendor lock in there. But I mean, yeah, if you've got a Kindle, you don't even see it. Yeah, that's fair enough. You don't you don't see it; it comes straight down. I've got a Kindle; I love it, so that's less of an issue for me. Um, though I'm sure you've probably been in the same boat, and I think I've probably ranted on this before. When it's like you've got books that's sold in the US, but you, you can't get it in Australia or New Zealand or any other country because of yep. publishers doing stupid things, and then it's just a case of, well, all right, so I can either get it from here or I can try and download it from the UK or something like that or and generally when you get that then you get a you know you get the Adobe digital publisher um, digital editions digital editions that's the one mm -hmm. you get that when you get downloaded like I often there's a there's a couple of sites I've got that'll sell 
UK books to the US, to Australia, which is kind of a bit dodgy, and they get in trouble for it if they get caught. Um, but then they have the digital editions DRM stuck on it, so you have to rip that off so I can actually read the book that I own, um, which takes you know ages to do, and I don't think a non-technical user could be able to do that. Whereas I could just hop on Google and just type name of book EPUB and 27 different versions that are that are downloadable in 30 seconds show up that I could get for free and all of a sudden the author doesn't get the book. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. That that drives me nuts. And in fact, I've sent more than one letter to uh, to authors that I really like going, you know, here are my three options. I can either buy it and, and just make, make just make it easy for me, you know, very simple. Mm-hmm. Or I can spend, you know, half an hour hacking this thing, which I'm happy to do so that you get your money. Or the third option is I can pirate it, which I think most people are going to do simply because it makes life so much easier in the long run. Um, the, the flip side of that, if you ever buy an O'Reilly book, they give it to you in all formats, DRM completely free, which is really yeah. lovely. Um, yeah. I'm a really, really huge fan of that. I had I had particularly that issue with DRM books a while ago because I used to have a Sony reader, yeah. and then I changed to um, just using my iPad for reading basically, and I had a few purchased books um, on the Sony e-reader which were protected with Adobe DRM and Adobe Digital Editions. Yeah, and you know there was no way of getting those books, even though they were PDF actually or EPUB, to getting those books into into iBook on the iPad. And you know, I had to do exactly the same thing. Basically, I, you know, I feel that I own the books, so I basically unwrapped the DRM, which yeah. didn't take me long because there are pre-made scripts to do that, mm. and then you know, put them on my on my iPad that I can actually continue to read them. And some of them were technical books, you know, where the book was like 80 US or something like that. So I'm certainly not going to buy that again just because I'm using an iPad now. Yeah. But you know, who who expects users to do that is unfortunately not really real, you know. No, I agree completely. They're on a complete tangent, um, Amazon Amazon Kindle services now got their WhisperSync stuff for uh, what they call personal documents. So if you not only you know how they've got WhisperSync where if you've bought a book off Amazon and you're reading it on your your iPad or your Android tablet, as if you may, or your mm-hmm. phone, and you go to your Kindle and it'll sync up the pages. It now has that for personal documents. So if you upload stuff to your Kindle, it'll store it, and in in you've got a little space in the cloud uh, for that book. It'll actually store that book up there. You can pull it to multiple devices, and then you can actually whisper sync between them too. So you don't actually have. It's just not. It's not just restricted to uh, Amazon Books now, which is really cool. That's interesting. Yeah. So even if you're not an Amazon customer, you could actually just use that service, really, um, and and use that to sync up your books across devices. Which is pretty cool. Okay. I think it's about half a gig. You get about half a gig, which is not bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, ebooks are usually not that large anyway. Exactly. You know, depending on what what format it is, epubs are usually quite small. So um, yeah, oh, just interesting. interesting. But anyway. Yeah. So, so coming back to my support case, basically, yeah. what I did then after starting those runs and you know being really annoyed, I um actually got help from someone within Adobe. So there's one person involved with the community program who saw that email I posted to a certain email list, and she basically locked a call um, and put some pressure behind that. And I also talked to um, one of the yeah. local Adobe guys here in New Zealand who did the same thing. And the funny thing is, when I called him on the next day in the morning, he said, that's really odd. You know, I've heard those stories quite a few times in the last week or two. Let me try to figure out what's going on there. So and then I heard back from him, and what happened is there is or there was apparently 
a lot of issues with the time zones on the Adobe's activation servers. Okay. Um, because when it happened last week, it was sort of still in the time where a lot of countries, and depending on where you are in the country, you change between DST and you know normal time, standard time. And something apparently threw off the activation servers in that, or you know, so it didn't activate in certain cases. But you know, instead of telling um, that information that Adobe had for you know a week or two at that stage already to their first level support, they kept that nicely secret basically and didn't tell anyone. So that customers like I seriously got frustrated and annoyed by having to deal with first level support who have no clue or were not allowed to tell you what the actual problem was. So what why, happened... Why keep that to yourself? That doesn't make any sense to me. I think it's because, you know, that's my personal opinion. I have you know, no further confirmation on that. Yeah. I think because Adobe is obviously massively pushing into the cloud and into a subscription model, right? With having Creative Suite subscriptions at the moment and having Creative Cloud coming in six months or whenever they launch that, basically, where the Creative Suite tools will also be sold on an online subscription model. So, and those subscription models use activation a lot. And obviously, if you have to admit that actually, well, you know, we screwed up our activation service for the last two weeks and we just, you know, we didn't even realize it because we made some basic mistakes with DST and time zones that really shouldn't shouldn't happen anymore in yeah. 2011 from my point of view, that would probably undermine, um, you know, trust in the whole activation and subscription model. And that's why I personally could think people want to rather keep that, keep that under the carpet than um, publicly speak about that. But anyway, what happened then, um, because I was vocally enough and used some connections within Adobe, I yep. got a call back from an actual engineer of the... Um, of the activation software team and he fixed it with me in about two phone calls of three minutes each. Wow. You know, and basically part of the solution was because of those time stone issues, um, I set my computer to GMT activated and then they set it back to my time zone and, and, you know, and also modifying a file, but that's how simple it can be. Right. And, to add more insult to the whole story and to the whole behavior of, of first level support after it was fixed on Tuesday afternoon, then which I'm convinced of had just happened because I used those internal connections mm. and I put some public pressure on them basically by being really loud on Twitter. Yep. Um, on Thursday or Friday, I got another email from first level support again, saying, "Oh, we are ready for that callback now," which they promised me would have hap would have happened in 24 to 48 hours after my first call anyway, which never really happened. But yeah. then they sent me another email. Obviously, no one has told them that the problem is solved by now. No, there's no connection there. Obviously, and it's just like, really, you know, Adobe is the head doesn't to... know what the feet are doing. Yeah, exactly, and you know they are really pushing into that whole customer experience management market massively. That's the yep. new big thing for the enterprise products. And I keep thinking, well, maybe, you know, Adobe support should either eat their own dog food and actually do something about the customer experience because it's actually quite bad, to be honest. Yeah, you know? yeah. And 
or the other option would be give people like us who actually know what they're doing. You know, no one needs to tell me, oh, have you rebooted your computer? Oh, for fuck's sake. Yes, I have <laughs> multiple times, obviously. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to, you know, give me a shortcut. Give me a special number and maybe have me go through a multiple choice test of 50 questions before I'm allowed to use this number to prove that I'm not an idiot. But, you know, whatever, yep. do something that I don't have to put up with that because that was one of the most annoying support experience I ever had in my life. I would, I would also think that I think that, uh, that there's obviously a disconnect somewhere between first level support being able to say, "Hey, let's let's escalate this." You know, you'd think, you know, if that if that was sort of in place where they've talked to you and they're like, "Reboot your computing," like I've done that, doesn't work. You know, they've gone through that that standard set of stuff, then just escalate it. You know. That's that's kind of the whole point of having tiered support levels. You know, if the first level support can't manage it, it goes up the queue. Uh, so um, yeah, it's very surprising that that didn't didn't happen straight away. Yeah, it was you know overall not really not really a good experience to be honest. And you know I I I'm not, I can't really say that it's organization wide, but it's certainly an issue on the first level of Adobe support. Like I said, I mean, the guy I actually ended up speaking to, you know, the technician of the of the um, activation yeah. end, basically, he was spot on, switched on. He knew what he was talking about. He basically said, oh, do you know where to find this in this file? I said, yep, yeah, all good. You know, just let me give it a try quickly. You know, and he wasn't, he wasn't treating me like an idiot and he knew what he was doing. Yep. And that's what it should be. That was really yep. good. But, you know, to get to that stage as a normal person, not using those internal connections I used, that must be really, really frustrating. Yeah. No, I totally understand. And now, you know, how hard is it to search for Photoshop crack? You know, yep. not hard. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's like, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things, you know, if you think about it in terms of would it cost three hours of support time? You know, plus then potentially losing a customer long term. Going, well, um, there's no point in me buying cereals anymore because the level of support I get and it doesn't work. So why would I bother? You know, long term to be able, rather than being able to actually have the right process in place to be able to actually solve issues. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I understand completely. Uh, so you know, anyway, it's working again now. All Good. licenses activate again after you know doing that GMT trick and modifying a few files. Yep. But it's still yeah. It's still annoying. Great. That was, that was a pretty good rant. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I was pretty def impressed. Def definitely something different, you know, for a change. <laughs> so, but, you know, to actually come back to the good side of things, um, also in the uh, recently, like a few weeks ago, a few good things happened or a few interesting things happened with Adobe. So I was at Adobe Max and yep. um, they showed quite a few cool tools. And that's really the other side, right? That's... It's a, like a double-edged sword or, you know, like showing really having two faces of a company, the product side and the innovation side. Yep. And then the, oh, shit, we have to support you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do that as well. You know, if we have to. So, I don't know. Have you have you seen anything from Max yet? Yeah. I watched you watch a, a few videos or something? I watched a few videos. Um, actually, I'll bring this up because this bugged the hell out of me since we're on a ranty sort of day. Um trying to watch the keynotes online. Did you have a look at the experience, the online experience of trying to watch the keynotes? I'm going to guess you probably didn't. 
No, I haven't this year. We've done that last year because, you know, remember Diana had surgery yep. and couldn't yep. go. So we watched the keynotes from from here, or I watched the keynotes from here after the... So I was like, oh, I'll watch the keynotes online. This sounds really good. So I boot it up, and I'm like, oh, this is this is the middle of the keynote. Oh, okay, that's a bit weird. And I was like, oh, maybe it, maybe it thinks I'm... I don't know what's going on. This is very strange. Maybe it's live. And then I'm like, okay, fair enough. So I'll come back to it a bit later. Hopefully I'll be able to get like on demand, and I come back to it, and it's about 15 minutes further on in from where it was before. I'm like, what's going on? I don't understand. Uh, so I started asking on Twitter and stuff, and then I realized it's just on a loop. Yeah, I heard that, actually. Which, to me, seems just... in the Like, I haven't seen that since I flew on a plane uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> and uh, the, it was the only way of watching, you know, you, you had your movies, they were on a loop, and you had to sync your time up with what movie was being played on the plane. Yep. And it's when you first had your first sort of, you know, your own personal digital media player in front of you. Yeah. Like, I... It's 2011, people. Let me just hit play and watch something. Seriously, I I would have no idea why they why they did that. Actually, it's it sounds bizarre. totally pointless. I mean, there should be no reason because if they have the recording anyway, yeah, why not make it on demand? It was just I I couldn't understand the reason for it. It was really frustrating. I was like, I just want to play it in the background. You know, I want to be able to pause it. That would be. Can I, can I just pause it? Like, I really need to go to the bathroom. Can I just pause it? Or, I, you know, the thing goes for well, an hour and a half. On the other hand, you know, that's that's particularly a um, a situation you can't really. It, it's simulating the real life, right? If you're sitting in the keynote, if you have to go to the bathroom, well, I mean, go to the bathroom. That's fine, but they don't wait for you. You know, I that's, could. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. But at the very least, then you know what time the keynote starts. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't even say that it was on a loop anywhere. I just thought something was broken. I didn't, I was just going, what the hell? I don't understand. This is confusing. I'm sitting here wondering, you know, when was the last time I've seen a video on a loop on the internet? And especially by a company that's meant to be so video friendly as Adobe. (laughs) Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, no okay, idea. That, that was my yeah. rant. That and I can't, the hell of me. I can't even re- I can't remember how it was two years ago actually. If I remember correctly, I think I was able to just hit play and watch it whenever I wanted to. I didn't have to wait for any, anything well, special to happen. Ends up on YouTube. They end up putting it on YouTube, and then obviously you've got no issue there. Um, yeah. I was watching it. I think the day of or the day after. But um, so I just I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm not watching the rest of this. <laughs> <laughs> that's annoying I've got work to do you know and then I can't come back to it because I don't know what spot I was at and I don't know where I yeah. am in the loop so I've got absolutely no way of knowing anything there's not even you know <laughs> I was like you know what screw it it's not worth it oh uh, sorry <laughs> so anyway yeah <laughs> that was my rant okay fair enough so I mean obviously a few interesting things happened at Max right I guess yeah. um, one of the big things that caused some I don't know disappointment in the confusion community was that confusion wasn't mentioned in the keynote personally i don't think that's a big deal you know but some people got really enraged about that actually it's never mentioned in the keynote especially if it's not on a release yet i mean there were just that many adobe products out there and you know we could probably make a laundry list of ones that weren't mentioned in the keynote but it's so not a big deal yeah I, i can i would totally agree to that but you know i heard a few people talking about 
about the fact that confusion wasn't mentioned in the keynote in the context with you know moving everything offshore and having having not having a US based product manager again and I just thought oh guys really you know do we have to go there is that oh, just ridiculous but you know that's how some people tick I guess just you know just happens with limited amount of maybe maybe what we actually need is every keynote they should just have a slide where they list every product and then no one can complain that no one can complain yeah. be like just see it's right there yeah in the keynote exactly. But then people, then then you get people going. Well, you know, we were in the slide, but you know, we didn't get talked about anywhere else. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, let's let's just not go there. It's, you know, there's no no point really. That's what I. Sorry, that's going to upset yeah. some people, and I apologize. Not really. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> whatever. So anyway, um, what I found interesting was the clear move towards open web standards. For web development within Adobe. Yeah, this is this is actually quite an interesting. Uh, and that's actually quite significant. You know, that has a quite significant impact on a lot of things people are doing uh, with Adobe technology and Adobe platforms at the moment. I think. Yeah. So to you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure most of our listeners would have picked up on all that by now. But just to sum it up quickly, um, basically what Adobe says is, Flash is pretty much a tool in the future to develop games or extremely rich content. Flex is going to push towards mobile, becoming a mobile framework more and more. Will certainly be used in enterprise applications. But you know, there's quite a bit of uncertainty how that's actually going to look like. And if you do want to build anything, you know, in the web that runs in the browser, don't use Flash anymore. Use HTML5 and JavaScript. And to basically prove their point, they purchased the company, you know, that developed PhoneGap, mm-hmm. which is pretty much like an HTML5, CSS, JavaScript wrapper technology to build mobile apps for a variety of platforms with web standards technology, which is really cool, by the way. Um, and they purchased Typekit, um, which is a, uh, let's say, a font delivery and font licensing service. Yep. Um, which is actually really cool, and I yeah. think both both of those purchases were really good moves. But it sends a quite clear message to people who did a lot of Flash and Flex in the past. I mean, or build build things in Flash and Flex for the web at least. It's an oh. interesting one. No, no, I'm, I'm I'm actually I wasn't going offline. I was just I was just thinking. Do you think that? It's more of a statement about pushing forward their commitment towards HTML5, which I think is something that Adobe has to do, yeah. and less about um, the direction of Flex and Flash. Or do you actually think they are making more of a message about Flex and Flash in this statement? I think it's both. Um... I totally agree. Adobe has to go down the road of HTML5 and yeah, JavaScript, you know, and they they prove that with actually really good tools. You know, there is Adobe Edge. I don't yep. know if you've played with that. I haven't actually. Have you? Yeah, I ha- I've done a, quite a few things with it, and it's really cool. It's like um, basically a JavaScript animation tool. So you, you know, it's like Flash back in the days. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you animate on a canvas, on yep. HTML5 canvas tag. 
and you use in the background it uses jQuery libraries and also an internal animate or an edge specific animation library to write JavaScript and, and generate JavaScript code for your animations. Yep. And it's quite amazing what people have started to do with that. And the latest the latest preview particularly allows to you to write custom JavaScript and do all a lot of all those things. You think, oh, you know, this is actually looking really, really good, basically. But you know, that's a sidestep. Back back to your question. Yep. They have to go down HTML5, JavaScript, CSS more and more. Sure. Yep, we agree. Because they are a tool company, you know, and they have to support those technologies properly. Yep. And I think it's, I think it's almost fair to hedge their bets. You know? Oh, totally. You know. Yeah. Obviously. The. I, yeah, go. What, what I think is sort of telling a message, though, is. The justification for having a browser plugin or for requiring a browser plugin for your specific web application you're building has or always used to be and actually has to be that you're doing something you can't do with built-in browser technologies, right? Yeah. So back then it was animation and then music and then video and then video streaming and then, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you can name it basically. Yeah. So now that HTML5 and JavaScript are catching up more and more with stuff that previously could just be done by a Flash player, yeah. like, for example, I don't know, offline storage and, you know, on a mobile phone, things like geolocation yeah. or, I don't know, I mean, all those things, basically. It You need to find a new justification for using Flash Player or for building something on Flash Player. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the games environment, that is quite obvious and quite clear, right? Because yep. Flash Player 11 has built-in native 3D capabilities now, yep. which is um, a which super is cool. big thing for game developers, right? And they showed some demos at Max. Um, they running know, the Unreal Engine or something. Yeah, running like the Unreal Engine yeah. in Flash Player and with a really, really good performance. You know, playing Unreal in or Unreal Tournament in your browser is like, oh wow, that is actually amazing, right? Yeah. But that is obviously, you know, that's justification why people would want to use Flash in the future. Mm -hmm. But obviously, having 3D or not having 3D is not that significant if I'm building, let's say, an enterprise dashboard. Yep. to show, you know, the the management of my customer some figures or visualize yep. some figures. So from that point of view, for those applications, you lose sort of the necessity to build something in Flash and Flex, and particularly because more and more people want something that works on the iPad. Yeah. It pretty much means like, yeah, Flash and Flex are a no-go here. And I'm not saying that, you know, because I'm an Apple fanboy. Well, I am to, sort of, to some extent, obviously. You are. Yeah, I am. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, it's a, it's a fair point. iPad um, sales and iPad usage is particularly in businesses, among management, among tech-savvy people, reasonably, mm. reasonably high. And if you build something that doesn't work on the iPad as, at all or, you know, just really poorly, that is going to be less and less accepted, I think. And it's that's cutting out a chunkier market. Hmm? It's cutting out a chunkier market, which, you know, which means generally you're cutting out your customers, which is not a good thing. Yeah. So, you know, on other on other tablets, like on the Android tablets, you have a Flash player and you have Air, for example. Mm. So you could you could build something 
that uses Flash and Flex for those tablets that even runs in the browsers mm. or for those phones. But, you know, you're still missing the whole iOS side of things. Unless you and, build uh, some sort of compiled iOS native app using those tools. Which you can do, but then you have a totally different story to tell your users. Like, you know, why do I have to go to the App Store to make use of this? You know, why can't I just browse a mobile website, for example? So, you know, it gives you yourself, it gives your whole situation a bit of a different spin, actually. Which pros and cons both ways, but yep. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that, I mean, that's obviously the issue why they needed to do something for HTML5 and JavaScript yep. developers more and more yep. and why the role of Flash and Flex is more and more changing going away from application development for the web or for the browser to becoming sort of a mobile-specific technology or to becoming more and more of a games technology in, in the case of Flash. And, you know, that, that's fair enough. I just think that there are a lot of people out there who didn't expect that to happen all of a sudden. I guess the question to ask would be, when did they expect that to happen? I don't know. You know, it was, from my point of view, personally, it, it was a move that was quite foreseeable. Um, mm. If, you know, if it hadn't happened two weeks ago at max, might have it happened like, it, it would have happened in six months maybe, you know, or, or in, in three months, I don't yeah. know, or next max, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's clearly something that was where you could could get the wipe from looking at what happens in the industry, but it seems to me that a lot of people who are not that well in connected with mailing lists and industry and you know who sit in their little cubicle doing development and then go home, that um, they got sort of caught by surprise. Didn't see the landscape changing. Yeah, exactly. And I've seen a few mailing lists posts and discussions popping up afterwards where people said, oh, Adobe ruined my business and Adobe, you know, killed Flex. And that's not true, you know. No. It's, um, well, I mean, sure, technology choices and technology changes always have an impact on your business, but they didn't kill Flex, you know. And it was, like you said, there's a landscape change happening and that was sort of foreseeable that, you know, they will put another big focus on HTML5 and JavaScript in the future and that the role of Flash and Flex will have to change um, because plug-in technologies are always innovation technologies and not, you know... Yeah, that's actually stuff. a really good point. Yeah, and that, that's really what well, how I see it, you know. As long... A plug-in is just justified as long as it innovates and as long as it can do stuff that you can't do with a browser. Do the browser. No, I, I think that's a really, a really good point. Um... So that you know, and I think I think you bring a really good point to it. And I think to the people who are worried about you know what they're going to be doing um, if they're if they're Flex and Flash developers and they're saying you know my business is going to go because we're Flex and Flash company blah 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 blah. Well, a obviously there's there's the option to look at new technologies, but the other option there is to say okay, what are the innovative technologies that Flex and Flash can give us? Um, did I just say flex and flesh? I think I did. Flex and flash. <laughs> flex and flash. Oh Jesus. Uh, flex and flash can give us and say, okay, fine. That's what we're. That's what we're going to focus on. You know, that's what we're going to bring to our customers. You know, uh, maybe it's the analytics side of things that you know, flex video and, and like the Omnitrue integration can bring in. You know, maybe it is the 3D uh, accelerated graphics and and all that sort of stuff. You know, what is it that that flex and flash can give us above what you can do with an HTML5 canvas or or, or building applications that way, you know, what, 
you know, where's my where's my core competency? What makes me different? You know, what's my differentiator? Yeah. You know, which which you have to do as a business anyway. So, yeah. like, I can I can empathize with those people totally. I think I can I can totally understand where you're coming from. Whereas, you know, the sands shift under your feet and you're sort of going, oh god, what are we going to do? But I think the unfortunate reality of working IT is those sands are always going to shift. Yeah, yes. and you know, realistically, look at look at the Confusion community. Look at us yeah. doing Confusion for years now, and we are being told that Confusion is dead and you know a legacy technology. I don't know since I started doing Confusion, probably you know, yeah. like when I started in '99 or 2000, people said, "Oh, you should rather do Java or PHP because Confusion is dead." And well, you know, we're still we're still pretty much alive and kicking. You know, it's. Yeah. I mean, technologies don't die that quick. That's one thing. And you're absolutely right. You know, you have to adapt with um, the realities of a changing landscape, and you know, find your new niche, and you know, find a market in which you could apply your services. And to be fair, you know, it's there's still a lot of merit in using Flash and Flex, because the HTML5 JavaScript development model is, from my point of view, still not there where it really should be. You know, yeah. like. I'm sure a lot of the processing Write, tools and yeah, stuff like writing, that is... writing and debugging JavaScript code is just so painful still, you know. And yep. I love the fact that Flex has proper tooling or you know compiler-based tooling, and that it tells me what's wrong actually before I start to put it on a page or on a yep. Yep. on on a server and test it actually at runtime. I mean, on the on the flip side of all of this, you know, you look at the snakes and and you've got the Flex reverse debugging example coming yep. up. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Totally. So there's obviously a commitment there from Adobe to look at you know the development tools and process for Flex stuff, which means there's, there's a really good commitment there. I mean, it's not like they're dropping the ball on this one. No, um, they don't. They they put pretty much an interesting situation in place for Flex, particularly so though, and that's that mobile scenario, right? Yeah, it's a very a very strong push towards. Um, Placing Flex as the technology to develop cross-browser or cross-mobile operating system applications, and Flex is doing actually a quite good job for that. You know, mm. if they clean up a little bit of the performance issues, it's a quite powerful technology to do all that. But then at the same time, um, they put their whole chances or their whole future. For flex in one particular market. That's my impression, at least. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, well, you know, flex is mobile now. If for whatever reason flex doesn't get adopted on mobile, I'm personally not quite sure what's going to happen then. Well, let me ask this question: How could they innovate further in the desktop market? I mean, they're already bringing 3D acceleration, um, so there's there's obvious commitment there as well. Mm-hmm. What else could they be doing that is otherwise being taken away for mobile stuff? I don't know, but I mean, you need to keep in mind that you have to separate Flex and Flash a little bit. Yeah. You know, Flex is just a framework. What they do with with um, 3D or any other innovation they are going to to come come along or come come over with in the next few months or years mm. is pretty much innovation on the Flash player level. And you can just code it with you know Flash and ActionScript if you wanted to. Flex is a different story. They try to p- particularly position Flex as, as the framework. As the framework. Yeah, that's fair enough. And having mobile components like the spinners for dates and stuff like that. 
so you'd, you'd be saying, okay, for, for the Flex desktop, you'd want to be saying, okay, how, how does that framework enable me to build applications on the desktop easier and better? Which is yeah, where, I mean, where it, we've seen that innovation. Yeah, it does. It certainly does help you to build applications for the desktop or even for Air. You know, if you want to mm. build a, if you have Flex and Flash skills and you want to build a desktop app, then Air is actually still a good way from my point of view, besides the fact that they killed Linux support, which I find absolutely ridiculous, but that's, you know, a different story. But, oh, know, I wasn't going to say anything, but yep, good, go no, on. <laughs> it is, you know, it's it's totally the, the wrong pick, the wrong move from my point of view, but, yep. you know, fair enough, like, you know, their choice. I think there is still some use for Flex on the desktop, mm. totally, but it's a pretty big push towards mobile, and they just need to be careful that in case the mobile story doesn't work out as they want to, that they have some idea what they want to do with Flex afterwards in place. Yep. That's that's pretty much my own my only worry really about that. And you know, from a Flash platform and particularly Flash player point of view, I think there are quite a few interesting things they could um, innovate on. You know, things like I don't know built-in augmented reality and the Flash Player and, you know, extending the 3D capabilities and, I don't know, there are tons of things that are not done yet and, you know, people want to use all those modern cool things. Um, I have yet to see an exa a good example of, um, for example, augmented reality done with HTML5 and JavaScript. So, yep. you know... There are a lot of things where the web standards technologies really can't um, keep up with browser plugins at this stage, at least. Actually, to, to, is an interesting. I don't know if it's an interesting segue or not. Um, I mean, since we're on a bit of a ranty talk as well today, I mean, we're talking about web standards. You, you heard me rant a little while ago about how I think CSS as a model is broken. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, no. I should I should clarify that. I should say, CSS as a model I don't think is broken. I think the whole separation of, since we were talking about web standards and the whole web standards community, I don't think that as a model it's broken. I think the separation of display logic and uh, semantic documentation, I think that's great. I think the way CSS has been implemented is completely broken. Um, now, I've had this argument with a few people now, and some people disagree with me, but it's, um, and maybe some of these issues have definitely been, been fixed in, in HTML, uh, sorry, in CSS3, and I've looked at some of the things, and some of them have. Um, but it, it really comes down to a core issue of I don't understand why CSS is so hard to do very simple things in layouts. Um, and it's something that really kind of irks me, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's just, and I think, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that really, you know, you look at. Um, Web standards, as as far as like W3C and all that sort of stuff come across, there's no there's no competition there. They don't have to move any faster than they they want to, um, and realistically, you know, browser uptake obviously is a bit of an issue as well, and obviously cross browser compatibility is obviously an issue as well. But there's no other choice there. There's nothing to compete with them with. So it's been years and years and years and years until we've seen any innovation. And now we're starting to see some innovation in that space, HTML5, CSS3, all that sort of stuff. And I think a lot of that's been pushed by the mobile browser space because obviously people are looking for mm -hmm. better and bigger things. But up until that point, really, what did we see? CSS 2.1, um, 
where where simple X, things X HTML one and stuff yeah. like that, which really didn't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, which was which was what a tidy up. I mean, seriously, um, you know, and I just it just ugh, it drives me. It really drives me crazy. I mean, now in HTML three, uh, sorry, in CSS three, doing column layouts. Is, is a bit easier. I haven't actually played with that, but I've looked at the spec. That looks pretty good. But before... That, that, that's one, the one I pinged you, didn't it? When you, yeah. when you were around about, oh, I can't do multi-columns. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah it's just Well, you easy. can with... Well, you know, but that's the other thing as well. You you can with CSS3. Well, I can't if I'm having to support IE7. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know? That, that, that's totally fair enough, yeah. Um, and why wasn't it done right in the first place? Do you know what I mean? It's like... Okay, you know that's that's really really hard. Uh, you know, if I want to vertically align something on a page, it's really really hard. If I want to have something that's 100% high, you know, things that things that everyday web developers hit over and over and over again as difficult things to do with with CSS shouldn't be difficult. Yeah, it should just be easy. Um, and it's it's really funny. I have um, one of my clients is um, you know. You, Basically, we've been working on his legacy system for ages. When he first did it, he did it all with tables. And so I'll be trying to hack something up in CSS HTML, and he'll be like, "Well, it's pretty easy in tables, isn't it?" And he's half joking. But, mm. but you know, a lot of these things they just were. And yeah, of course, it's not semantic; it's horrible and all that sort of stuff. And there's there's so many things that are wrong with that. But at the end of the day, that was actually really easy to do. Whereas yeah, now we seem to have to jump through these hoops to get things to happen, which is just frustrating. It's interesting, though. I mean, I think part of the problem that you that you were describing is that all the web standards um, are basically committee driven. Yeah. It's designed by committee, right? So you get like those meetings. I don't know how often they happen every three months or every six months, and in the meantime, they just communicate via mailing lists, pretty much. And in those committees, you have all you know, sorts of people from bigger vendors like Microsoft, Adobe, Google, you name it, sitting there and a few scientists and discussing on a very academic level what's going to happen and what's the right and the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And that takes a while. And I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying, you know, totally neutrally, that takes a while. And that is if we now we can actually take the curve back to go to, to the Flash Player or to any plugin technology. That is why plugin technologies are able to innovate reasonably quickly yeah this is because basically you know they are driven by what let's say adobe in the case of flash player um and they decide we want to have 3d in the flash player what do yep. we need to do can we you know what are the basic stuff we need to implement how is it going to work how has the impact it how what's the impact on you know flex 4 or 4.5 on action script yada 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 and then they work through that and implement it and they don't have to come to majorities or agreements or all that stuff. And that, you know, there's good and there's bad things about that, right? Because it can lead to, you know, building the wrong thing or something that people just don't want if they do some, you know, some stuff internally. Um, whereas in a committee-driven approach, you probably have some more consensus, you would think, or at least a majority of certain, you know, of, of members supporting something. But it takes just long to come to those um, agreements and to those situations where you can move forward to the next feature. I also worry, and I think you brought it up as well, that the solutions they come up with are academic and not pragmatic. Yeah, they are. They quite often are because that's um, 
how those committees are traditionally formed. And quite quite interestingly, my impression is a lot of the people that get sent into those working groups by vendors are actually reasonably academic people within working for a vendor, you know, like computer scientists from some research lab within a company. I have no problem with that, but, you know, that's where that impression comes from. Basically, it's a very academic-driven process. And that and that's what scares me as a, as a solution coming out. It seems to be driven, and I have no basis of knowledge on this, on who actually drives it or not. And I'd be actually quite curious if anyone listening in wants to help us on, on people they actually know who help drive this process. But maybe that's changed with the move to CSS3, and maybe that's why we're seeing some more pragmatic solutions that way, especially with like things like clone layout and things like that. But yeah, maybe that's why we ended up in a place where it's like pragmatic things, just being able to get things done is so difficult because the people driving it are more academic and haven't really done that much with you know, it. You know who we should actually try to get on this podcast? Who's that? Um, we should get try to get Greg Rivers and um, Steph Sullivan on oh, yeah. this podcast because Greg is sort of behind a lot of the web standards and Dreamweaver stuff at Adobe and Steph is a very well-known person when it comes to CSS and, you know, dealing with those web standard technologies. Yep. And I'm very, very certain that they know much more about the processes behind those working groups and committees and could probably, you know, give us some interesting insight. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. Great. All right. yeah. You can do that then. Awesome. Yeah, I'll try to tie something <laughs> up for one of the next recordings, actually. That should be interesting. That should be very interesting. But I mean, you're right, you know, like web standards technologies developed over, um, you know, quite, quite a while in a quite slow pace, basically, and have caught up on speed just now. Recently. It would be really interesting, I think, um, if there was another inbuilt display technology inside that came shipped with browsers that was CSS-like or, or some derivative of or maybe something completely different that enabled you to do display technology. Take your HTML markup, and which I actually have no problem with HTML. It does its job. I've got actually really no issue with it. Um, I'm sure people could have find issues with it, but just an alternate one that kind of ran alongside in each browser as though you had a choice. I think that would make a really interesting landscape change. Yeah, it would, I guess. And I mean, you know, when you look at, for example, how Flex is doing things, that is sort of the model they run with, besides the fact that it's obviously not built in into the mm. browser. But, you know, they have those MXML tags, and with the MXML tags, you basically build up your layout, and then it looks identical across every mm. platform you run it, you know. And that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, uh, Microsoft Silverlight was same idea. Um, yep. Java FX, same idea. You've got a markup language that you use to describe and define your layout and your look and feel, and then you've got a scripting or compiled language to actually build your business logic. Yeah. Now, if, correct me if I'm wrong now, on the flex side, you've got like H boxes and V boxes. Is that yeah. sort of how it works? So you've got these horizontal blocks and stuff. Yeah, but they are they are really basic layout comp containers. I mean, there okay. you know there are more complex layout containers that give you actually more functionality if you want. There's a form container which automatically okay. applies some sort of form layout and there are a bunch of other things basically. So you don't really, like I, the big thing with HTML obviously is about semantic layout. You know, you want to yeah. you want to have a document that it describes itself as you sort of, as you lay it out on the page. 
is that still true for sort of flex MXML or is that or is it sort not, of coming at it from a very different perspective? Not that much, because at the end of the day, you know, it's it gets compiled to bytecode anyway, to ActionScript bytecode. Yep. So it's not that important anymore that the source document is semantic, really. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, because it's not really. Semantic. It's not really delivered. You know, yeah. the delivery is basically a Swift or a collection of Swifts in the yep. end. So it's a bit of a different story, really. Um, I would probably compare the you know, the type of layout components you get in Flex more with the type of stuff you get if you build um, Java Swing apps or Java AWT apps or, yep. you know, Java Rich uh, Eclipse rich Eclipse platform or whatever it's called nowadays, apps. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you have, yep. that makes sense. you know, UI components and containers that hold those UI components, basically. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for just remembering, bringing back memories of grid bag layouts and swing. You should, you should. Oh yeah, that was, that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, you should maybe, you should maybe attend a few flex sessions at the upcoming CF Objective conference to learn a bit more about flex and layout and stuff. I should do that. <laughs> I should do that. That would be good. Yeah. So, um, just to wrap up the Max topic. Um, yeah. I mean, we talked about the flex reverse debugging that they showed in the and the sneak peeks that was quite cool and there so, was another thing you particularly liked in the sneak peeks I think yeah you want to briefly talk about that yeah sure um, for actually really really quickly do you want to explain to people what the reverse debugging actually was so that the people who weren't there ah. haven't seen it uh, okay I'm, I'm pretty sure there are videos on YouTube yeah, probably. Right now. so if you search for flex reverse debugging you'll probably get a sort of yeah, idea are. how it works the, the idea is you know, when you do traditional debugging, you set a breakpoint in your IDE and then you run your app and it hits the breakpoint and then from there you can basically go forward. And reverse debugging makes basically means you can go in either direction, which is really, really cool. And you can try to find out where something happened. And I think he, you know, he showed basically in the demo, he used a right-click menu and to inspect variables and to find out where variables were set and where something was called. And there was a right-click menu item called Y. And it basically took you to, you know... Where it originally went. Came where from. it originally happened or where it went wrong or where, where the variable was set. And that was really amazing. And I actually love the naming. It's like, you know, having a menu item Y question mark is awesome. You know, that <laughs> is so simple and yet totally explains what it does. It's like... Why? Yeah. Let's yep. just have a look. <laughs> I, bet you it Perfect. I bet you it doesn't get stays that way as a name. Oh, no, it, it won't. But, you know, it's just, I think it should because it's so simple that it's, you know, hard to beat it with any anything else. Yeah, no, that's very, very cool. So that's the reverse debugging, and it's quite cool. And from my understanding, um, that's nothing we're going to see in the really uh, near future. Um, so, I mean, Adobe has announced Flex 4.6 and Flash Builder 4.6 yep. um, quite a few weeks ago already. And I don't think it will be in there. Um, but, you know, maybe if it if they think it's worth doing, it ends up being in Flex 5, hopefully. Cool. Cool. So, what's your big thing from the sneaks, Mark? Oh, I liked the uh, Photoshop unblurring. The Photoshop stuff is always nifty because you look at it and you go, ooh, it's like magic. Um, 
I think I actually like the unblurring just because knowing how many bad blurred photos I've taken with my mobile phone, mm-hmm. being able to go back and say unblur is pretty cool. Yeah, but yeah, I mostly I think just because it looks like magic. Um, I think, you know, you're right. The Photoshop demos um, are usually the most talked about demos afterwards um, because they usually create some super interesting effect that no one thought was possible. And it's usually done by um, some math people Adobe has recently hired or, you know, imported from yep. somewhere in the world, basically, that came up with a math with a mathematical model behind that. What I found really interesting, I mean, for the people who have watched that Photoshop unblurring thing, it's basically a multi-step process, you know, mm. at least in his dummy sample code. Yeah. So the first thing was to calculate the blur kernel. And that, you know, and it showed that weird little trajectory line yeah how the image was blurred. And I, I love the term blur kernel. You know, that's like, that's the the ultimate geeky and nerdy term for something. <laughs> that's so awesome, you know, it, I just love it. And a lot of people at the conference basically said correctly, um, you know how many images I've deleted because they were blurred and shit? Yeah. I could have just kept all those images and now, you know, fix them, basically. Yep. And actually, Diana was one of one of those people. She said, like, oh, you know, I just cleaned up my image. Or, you know, over the years, we deleted so many images. That's such a shame that yep. no one came up with that earlier. Yeah. Or you knew that was in the pipeline, so you'd be like, you know what, I'll just hold on to them just in case. But, yeah, yeah for, you know, I just have them sitting here for another three, two years until they until... put it into Photoshop 7 or whatever. Now, now I actually wonder how many people will do that. We'll be like, it's blurry, but I can fix it in a couple of years' time, so I'll hang on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I can see some merit to that, at least unless, uh, you know, if you have, if you realized your photo was blurry in the first place right yep. away, then you probably have taken another one anyway, because that's, that's what you do. But if you haven't realized and you just have that one photo and it's just a bit blurry, then that's maybe a reason to just keep it then. And sometimes you just can't capture that moment you were trying to catch it before. Like you're just trying to catch something real quick and then you, you just miss it and it's yeah. gone. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, speaking about um, mobile phone cameras, just the other day I saw something really interesting. I saw a book about taking photos and taking quality photos with mobile phone cameras. I think it really? was particularly you know about the iPhone camera. Basically, it was like a 200-page book, like you know, being a photographer with your iPhone or something like that. Mm. And there are apparently people. Um, who have actually published photo books, like, you know, really nicely done photo books and stories and documentary books and done them entirely on iPhone cameras. Interesting. Which is really interesting. You know, I think that's a totally new category of photography coming up in the future, like, you know, going away from your big expensive um, DSLR and just doing something grungy but still cool with your little iPhone or mobile phone camera. It's just like a different discipline, you know, because you are limited in so many ways and you have to work around certain things and be aware of so many things. Nifty. I guess one of the issues with the iPhone and probably pretty much any mobile phone I can think of, you can't really mount it on a tripod. 
No. Because it doesn't have that hole. It doesn't have the, the thing, yeah. Yeah, where you connect a tripod plug into. But, you know, if it had that, that would be interesting. And video, you know, those little handheld video cameras, they went down that road. Uh, the flip cams, they have that little plug so you can screw it on top of a tripod and then use the flip cam as some sort of like a, you know, professional in quote <laughs> um, camera to record stuff and have some sort of, you know, move, move um, your viewing angle with a tripod instead of just holding it in your hand and stuff. Very cool. Yep. Cool. So, yeah, that was Adobe Max, pretty much. So we've talked about the bad and the good sides of Adobe. Today. Yes. I wish, I, I wish I'd been there at Max. I was kind of upset I didn't go, but... Yeah, I think from all I got from you during the conference on Twitter and emails... It was pretty much like, I'm going next year, I'm going next year, I'm going next year. There's no way I'm not going. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of upset I didn't go. Um, I kind of, yeah, decided that I wasn't going to be able to afford it. But, uh, yeah, I think I'll make sure I find a way next year. Yeah, I think you should. Good. I'm glad we have that decided. Now just tell my yeah. wife. Yeah. <laughs> Kai says that... Uh, Mark, you have to go. Yep. So um, it's in LA again next year, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's obviously always a bit of a downer because the city itself is not too great, at least yeah. from my point of view. I thought there was some talk of them doing it in San Francisco. Oh, uh, there was one in San Francisco a few years ago, and I really liked that, to be honest. Oh, sorry, keeping you up. Um, but the problem, the problem was um, basically, I think that they the the conference grew so large. Yeah that um, they had trouble with the venue. And when it was in San Francisco in 2008, they already were spread um, across Moscone Center and then two or three hotels where they had sessions in hotels as well. Oh, jeez. Like next door and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So it was a bit stretched already. So yeah, I can that's see crazy. why they want to go somewhere else. But, you know, particular LA, to be fair, LA is quite good for us to travel to because yeah. it involves usually a direct flight and no further domestic travel in the US. That makes it so much easier. Yeah. But then, you know, like there are quite nice other city, cities like Dallas or Denver, which have huge conference centers. And to be fair, you can, I think you can fly to either Dallas or Denver from Sydney direct now. Really? Yeah, with Qantas. They have a flight, I really? think a flight, they have a flight to, to Dallas, actually. I actually don't mind the second leg, because um, that's where I normally get my sleep. <laughs> Oh, you but, mean the domestic leg then? Yeah, the domestic leg. That's where oh, I, I, I hate I, that. You know, I don't like that actually. Domestic air travel in the US is not too great in the first no, place. I agree and then, with that. You know, having to transfer in LA, that's even worse. Oh, I'm <laughs> so, so used to that now. It's not really an issue. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's, you know what? Transferring in LA for me is actually a pleasure because having been on a plane for 15 hours, I like a bit of a walk outside. That's nice. Yeah, that's okay. But, you know, uh, yeah, but I hear okay. you. Yeah, just nothing I'm particularly keen on. So from that point of view, LA is fine. But what we found ourselves basically doing is we just go there for the conference. And then the first year, we stayed a few days afterwards, which was yeah. fine. But I mean, this year, we didn't do that. We basically, yeah. the conference was finished on, on Wednesday and we flew back Thursday night. So I spent this, or Diane and I spent the Thursday doing a bit of shopping. And we went um, flying, actually, in Santa Monica, nice. which was really cool. And that was pretty much it. But I have no urge to do any further tourism around LA. It doesn't appeal to me that much. Fair enough. Um, 
very quickly, I think I'd like to. There's a there's a new Cold Fusion podcast that came out. Ooh, who's doing that? Uh, now you ask a really good question. It is Mike Henke and uh, wait for the page to load. Come on, come on, come on, come on. All right, it is Mike Henke and Ryan Style um, oh. started a, a coldfusionshow.com. Uh, I haven't actually listened to the initial podcast yet. I should actually do that, but. Uh, I didn't even. Things. I didn't even know that it existed actually yet. I need to add that to my. Are they in iTunes yet? Um, I don't know if they are. They literally just opened up. Oh, October twenty second. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, they just opened up their website because I. They, uh, words trying to have words in my head. Um, it's very early, isn't it? <laughs> last week was a long week. Um. What was I going to say? Yeah, they they had it on Mike's uh, blog, and I said that's great. Do you want to start up an actual blog for it? So there's an actual RSS feed with you know with uh, embedded tags and stuff like that in it for yeah. for media and stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, we'll get on it, we'll get on it. So I'm just been waiting for that to to show up. Um, I'm actually just looking at. Here we go. I don't, know. I, don't know. I don't actually think it's in there. I don't think the embed tags are right. Um. But uh, yeah, apparently it's pretty good. I've heard good things. So cool. So, if you're looking for some more listening, which I actually have at the moment because I've run out of stuff to listen to, uh, then uh, I suggest checking it out. Okay. Uh, they host the the file on Amazon actually. Uh, there's a link to download audio, and you can listen to the podcast on the site. Uh, I need to have a look if it's on iTunes yet. That would be the easiest for me, obviously. <laughs> Google Listen for me. There is Google Listen? Yeah, it's a mobile phone app. Oh, okay. Um, and it integrates with uh, Google Reader. Oh, interesting. I really had nice. no idea. Okay. So uh, it's actually pretty cool. So basically in Google Reader, once I install Google Listen, I end up with a folder, which is, where are we? Uh, I'm looking for show all. Here we go. I end up with a folder called Listen Subscriptions, and I can drag and drop any subscriptions I want into that and then it syncs to my phone. Okay. It's really nice. This is not a bad little application. It does the job quite nicely. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. So, I don't know if uh, there are SSV feeders set up properly yet. But, uh, yeah. Sweet. Anyway, I will give it a try. Cool. And Me too. See what they're talking about. Cool. Anything else we need to discuss before we wrap up today's recording I will do another plug for the CIF Objective ANZ Plus Flex conference just for kicks as well Uh, that's obviously still going on uh, November 17th and 18th Uh, I'll do a specific plug for the workshops I think it's a pretty unique opportunity to get some really really top training for some top talent in the Adobe Confusion and Flex community Um, it really this sort of stuff doesn't really come around very often in, in our area so if you're interested in any of this stuff I would hop on it straight away because uh, yeah it really it really especially with the people we've got presenting Kai included um, thanks Mark that's lovely <laughs> well you're doing it with someone else and you know I've got a lot of respect for Sandy you I don't know but <laughs> <laughs> oh, great walks into that one and um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, seriously, I mean, okay, so we've got, obviously, Agile Technical Practices for RA and Confusion Developers with Sandy and yourself. Um, that's uh, That sounds like it's going to be awesome. Um, 
we've got building mobile applications for, for Android and iOS using Flex with James Talbot, uh, obviously one of the uh, luminaries of the, uh, the Flex community as well. I think that's, again, brilliant. You're not, you're not going to get that sort of that sort of training anywhere else. Mike Labriola, again, another luminary of the Flex community, um, developing performant Flex components for desktop and mobile. I mean, you, you, the sort of, I've, you know, if anyone's met Mike, um, I actually don't know James very well, but I've met Mike before. And apart from being ridiculously smart, the sort of knowledge that he has locked up inside his head, you just, you're just not going to get anywhere else. Um, and then we've also got an interesting Cold Fusion on Wheels with Mike Henke. Mike's been well, uh, well involved. He's, he's been heavily involved with the, with the Wheels framework for a long time. Uh, and, and is, as far as I'm aware, quite close with the guys that developed that and very, very involved with that, that framework. So having him here, if you're at all interested in Cold Fusion on Wheels, I mean, you can't, you can't ask for better training than that and you can't ask for better personal development than that. Uh, so, if you're really interested in that stuff, obviously I have bias because I'm running the conference, but I honestly think that, you know, apart from anything else, I think the content we've got this year overall as a conference is the best we've ever had. But uh, if you're if you're at all interested in, in Confusion and Reflex, you know, get on the workshops, get in the conference, you know, it's just going to be an awesome learning opportunity. I totally agree. I think the content we have this year is definitely the best we had ever. Um, and the, the choice of workshops is, as Mark said, really hard to come across outside of this conference in Australia and New Zealand, to be fair. Yeah. You, know, you just don't get that opportunity that often. Um, and professional development is extremely important, as we all know. So get your employers or, you know, basically your clients or yourself to pay for a day of professional development and, you know, learn something new and improve your skills. Totally yeah. worth it. No, I agree. In all, in all seriousness, I would actually be at one of these workshops if it wasn't for the fact that if anything goes wrong at the conference the day before, I would have to walk out the door. Yeah. So, unfortunately, that's that's why. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it's... I'm really looking forward to the conference. I think the, the content's been, been uh, very, very exciting. Cool. Alrighty. So, that is pretty much all we wanted to talk about I believe today, so. isn't it? Yes. Sweet. Then um, we'll see and talk to all you guys in a few weeks again. Wonderful. And um, yeah, have a wonderful day, Mark. I'm enjoying, <laughs> I'm enjoying my public holiday now from now on. Yep, I'm going to go start doing some work. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you Alrighty. very much. Um, if usual, close up. If people want to reach you, bug you, tell you that you're horribly, horribly wrong, how can they do that? They can always ping me on um, Twitter. My Twitter handle is Agent K. Um, and then you can also follow all the rounds of last week's uh, Master Collection serial activation issue if you are really interested in that. Uh, my blog is bloginblack.de and my email address is kiadventigo-creative.co.nz. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, probably the best place to bug me would be uh, on Twitter as Neurotic. Uh, you can reach my blog at compoundtheory.com. Obviously, everyone can bug us at 2ddu.com on the, on the comment section. Oh, true, yeah. yeah. Definitely, please give us comments. And we like, we like comments, just we to emphasize comments. that again. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to make a shout-out, because it's always fun. I'm going to ask for comments. I'm going to ask for comments from people who haven't met either Kai or I in person, or even just one of us. 
just going to, can you put a comment on there about who you are or maybe just say hello or something like that? I'm really interested to see who's listening to the podcast, especially if it's people we haven't necessarily met before because I know a lot of our friends are listening but want to see who else it's happened to reach. So if you're, if you're somebody we haven't met, please put a comment on our blog and uh, we'd love to say hello to you. But uh, yeah, if you want to reach me, Twitter handles neurotic, uh, compoundtheory.com. And if you want to reach me on Google+, Plus, which I use quite often, profiles.google.com slash mark.mandel, uh, you can hit me up on there as well. Cool. Should we have another quick bet on how many comments we're going to get from people who do not know either of us? Ten. I'm going to say ten comments. I think we get more than ten. Oh, give me a number. Come on. You, you can't okay. get more. So I th- I say we get 15, um, and I just hope that all you people listening to this actually, you know, please comment, please make it 15 or more or something like that. <laughs> don't lose. Yeah, it's like a le- yeah. Then we'll see who's closest. There we go. Yep. Awesome. Brilliant. Cool. Thank you very much, Kai. Thanks a lot, Mark. So have a nice day and speak to you later. Wonderful. Bye bye.